Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. There's a friend of mine I teach with at Worldview Academy who confided in me years ago that it was really frustrating for him whenever we had students in our classrooms from Reformed churches. He found it really frustrating because whenever he was trying to, to ask these difficult and mysterious questions and get the students to think about but the, the, the complexity of why God does what he does, they would always shut it down by having the right answer at the beginning and not coming to it at the end. He would ask, why does God do this? Why does God do that? And then someone would raise their hand and say, he does it for his glory. He does it for the glory of God. My friend was like, yeah, okay, well, right answer, but I was hoping we could spin this out a little bit. That frustrated him, but it delighted me because I love the idea that, that growing up in our churches, you might have printed into your psyche the right answer, whether you understand the depth of it or not, that God does what he does for the glory of God, ultimately. Ultimately, in addition to everything else, it's all about the glory of God. As we've been talking about the focus of the mission of the church, where our eyes need to be fixed, we come to the final answer to that question, and we find at the end that the answer is God. That the mission of the church must always, first and foremost, be focused on God, and specifically on the glory of God. And now I've just done what my friend hates so much, I've given you the answer before we've even started. The answer to the question that we'll be exploring this morning is the glory of God. Now let's look at our text. This is, as I said, a doxology that Paul gives at the end, starting in verse 25 through verse 27. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we pray that we might glorify you and that you might be glorified through us. As we contemplate your glory, we pray that you would draw back the curtain and give us a glimpse of the great reason behind all that you do. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So as I said, these verses at the end of Romans 16 are doxology, and you need to distinguish that in your mind from another kind of thing that it sounds a lot like, which is benediction. Right? At the end of the service, I'll give a blessing from Scripture, and that's a benediction. Benediction just means blessing. So a blessing to you from the Word of God. And it sounds very similar to this. But this isn't technically a benediction. This is a doxology. So it's not speaking a blessing to you. It's actually directing glory to God. So there's a directional difference. Now, these two things blur together a lot, and it's not unusual 
to come across a doxology that suddenly veers into benediction or vice versa and, and not be sure exactly which one it is. And that's okay because those things are meant to go together. Sometimes in our own worship services, at the end of the service, when I give the benediction, if you pay close attention to the words, you'll say, wait a second, this isn't a benediction, this is doxology. And, and you'd be right sometimes. But it's okay because these two things are inextricably linked because doxology is about glorifying God and the way that God glorifies himself is by pouring out blessing on us. So doxology and benediction go together. The blessings given to us are a means of God's glorification. You get the idea. So what Paul is talking about here is glorifying God But in the midst of that glorifying God, he's also going to talk about blessings that are poured out to us. He's going to talk about strong roots. He says, now to him who is able to strengthen you. And if we stop right there and just think about the word strengthen, um, a couple of things. One, I've been told again and again that I say the word strength differently than other people do. So I apologize. I'm going to keep saying it. If it sounds like I'm saying it in a funny way, I can't hear it. I I don't see the difference, but I've been told. But that's okay, because really we're not talking about strength at all. We're talking about sterixai. In Greek, sterixai is the word that's been translated strength. And and it it has a certain connotation to it. It's a word that that in English is sometimes going to be translated not as strength, but, but establishing. So to strengthen you or to establish you. For example, if you look in 1 Thessalonians, in chapter 3, in verse 2, Paul is writing to the Thessalonians, and he's explaining why he sent Timothy to them. And he says he sent Timothy to them to sterixi them concerning the faith. He wanted to sterixi them in the faith. In the ESV, if you turn to 1 Thessalonians 3.2, you'll see that, that it's translated, he wants to establish them in the faith. To establish them in the faith. That's the same kind of strengthening that he's talking about here. Uh, strengthening, establishing. It's, it's kind of an education or like a bestowal of knowledge that leads to steadfastness. Right, so a, a giving of knowledge that results in steadfastness, in faithfulness, that's sterixi, that's establishing, that's strengthening. So it's not just I want to make you stronger, but in a particular way, I want to establish you. You might think of it as the metaphor of, of roots in the ground. Now to him who is able to give you strong roots. Because it's hard when something is deeply rooted to pull it up out of the ground. There's a strength that comes from that rootedness. I discovered it for myself not long ago as as Lori and Mel were transplanting, literally, plants from the front yard to the backyard, these big bush things. And, And they were pulling and pulling and they wouldn't come out. So they summoned me to perform an act of manly strength and to pull these, 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 really like tenacious trees out of the ground. In order to accomplish it, I had to pull with all of my considerable strength while they also hacked away 
at the roots before these things would finally come out. Because they were so strongly rooted, they couldn't just be blown away or, or yanked out. They were established in the grounds. Now, Paul is going to allude very briefly in passing to three different roots, three different strains that we've seen in this epistle that keep us grounded, that keep us strongly rooted in our faith. And because he's only alluding to them briefly in passing, you have to understand the homework for these points, he's already done. He's just touching on things that he went deep on earlier in the epistle. And because he's done that, he can afford to just mention them in passing. Three things he's going to touch on. First, the gospel proclamation, how that roots us. Secondly, the whole history of redemption and how that roots us. And then third, the divine decree of election and how that roots us as well. So we'll start with the gospel. That's the easy one. The preaching of the gospel will keep you strongly rooted. The preaching of the gospel will keep you strongly rooted. Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. Now don't get the wrong idea when Paul says my gospel. When he says my gospel, what he's referring to is the gospel. The gospel that he has expounded in the book of Romans. And he's distinguishing it from these false gospels that people have heard of, these incomplete versions of the gospel. He's emphasizing that the the gospel that will keep you rooted is the the real one, the true one. As he would say in Greek, the euangelion, the evangelion. It's the gospel that he is referring to. But He doesn't stop there, right? He doesn't just say, my gospel. He says, my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. This is a little bit of a Hebraism. If you remember when we were spending some time in the Psalms earlier in the year, one of the ways that Hebrew poetry achieves its poetic effects is through repetition. This is why when you're reading the Old Testament, when you're reading the book of Psalms, you'll have two lines that appear to say the same thing in different words. And you're thinking, well, couldn't you come up with a new idea? Why do you have to just repeat yourself? Well, that's how they did poetry. They didn't rhyme the words the way that that we would in English. Instead, they repeated the idea. But often as they repeated it, they developed it. So that it feels like a repetition, but actually it's a repetition with a little bit of a difference. And that's true here as well. You might hear, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, and think, well, you're just kind of repeating yourself. It's true, but he's also developing the idea that preaching is emphasized. Preaching in the Greek is kerygma. The proclamation of the gospel is specifically what he has in mind. So you might think of it not only as the message of the gospel, but the act of proclaiming the gospel. Those two things together are the power that will keep you strongly rooted. It's not just the gospel that keeps you strongly rooted, as strange as it sounds to say that. It is the preached gospel. It is the gospel proclaimed that keeps us strongly rooted. Now, as I said, Paul's already done the homework on this. If you look back in Romans chapter 10, he devotes a lot of time to the power of the preaching of the gospel, that the proclamation of the gospel is the means that God uses to quicken 
the dead hearts of his people and to draw them to himself. Right? There's a power there. We think of that moment of hearing the gospel for the first time, the, the change in the heart, clinging to the cross that you used to be indifferent to. That's the power he's talking about. And it comes in that proclamation of the gospel. Now, that proclamation takes many different forms. Like What I'm doing now is a proclamation of the gospel. But of course, proclaiming the gospel can happen in a lot of different ways. It can happen in conversation. It can happen through life lived. It can happen uh, one-on-one. It can happen anywhere, right? But the proclamation of the truth of the gospel is what keeps us rooted. We not only hear this kerygma, but we participate in it when we share grace with others. And that is a means of strengthening our faith. That is a way that God builds us up and establishes us. We need to hear it in the same way that a plant needs the constant watering in order to thrive. So far, so good. Most Christians, I think, would agree that the preaching of the gospel, the proclamation of the gospel is important to our health, our strength in the faith. As we proceed, we're going to get into territory, though, where not everybody would agree. Where Paul, because of the emphasis in the book of Romans, starts getting into territory that that not every Christian and not every church would understand the same way. So, the preaching of the gospel will keep you strongly rooted, but also... The history of redemption will keep you strongly rooted. The history of redemption will keep you strongly rooted. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. That word translated according, kata in Greek, introduces each of these points. It's going to be according to, according to. So according to the gospel proclaimed, but now according to the history of redemption. Paul alludes to this mystery that was kept hidden, kept secret for long ages, and then has now been made apparent, has now been revealed and made known to all the nations. If you think about the moment of conversion, like, like when you believed, maybe you'd heard the gospel many times before. Uh, maybe you'd never heard it. And that was the first time. But that moment of conversion, if you start to reflect on it and, and what went into it, it's not unusual for people to start seeing circumstances like leading up to it and to see the way in which it seems like God was already at work in me long before I realized it. And I only saw it In hindsight, when I put the pieces together. And so when you think about your personal history, oftentimes it seems as if the Spirit was at work in your personal history long before you realized it. Now that's true in personal history, but as Paul has shown us in Romans, it is also true in the history of redemption, in the history of the world, that God was at work long before we realized, and that the work that he did was revealed over time progressively, so that there's a history behind the gospel. There's circumstances that lead up to it, a context that was developed over long epochs of time. And Paul uses the word mystery 
to refer to this. Now, for Paul, mystery can mean several things, but I'll give you kind of the two big ones. Uh, Mystery, as we've seen, has a really specific meaning for Paul. When he talks about the mystery being revealed, oftentimes what he means specifically is the, the fact that the Gentiles have been included in the plan of salvation, that it's possible for people who are not Jews to be God's chosen people. That's the mystery. Because throughout the Old Testament, you would never have anticipated that. Right? When, when Jonah is sent to preach repentance to Nineveh, it just seems to him like a crazy sort of mission because those weren't God's people. They had no interest in the God of Israel. So why be sent to them? But it turns out the God of Israel always had an interest that went beyond the borders of Israel as, as an ethnic group. Like he intended a larger salvation than what they anticipated. And, and that mystery is revealed in Jesus and specifically in Paul's mission to the Gentiles. So that's the really specific meaning of mystery. Then there's a more general one. Sometimes when he talks about mystery, he's talking about kind of just the whole plan of salvation being revealed. When you start with Genesis 3.15, the promise that we looked at Wednesday night, the, the idea that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent, that's the start of the gospel proclamation, but it's, it's a pretty cryptic proclamation. And over long epochs, the, the blanks are filled in. And we suddenly see what we couldn't see before. That is a revelation of a mystery as the nature of the gospel is revealed. Once you see this, once you recognize this history to the gospel, it's kind of hard to imagine the gospel apart from its rich historical context. It's hard to think about proclaiming the the gospel of, of Paul, the gospel of Jesus Christ, without thinking about everything that led up to it. And this is why Paul insists on that historical context, right? He says in our text here, through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. The prophetic writings, the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament. This is why Luke describes Jesus on the Emmaus Road preaching from from Moses and the prophets And that law and prophets message is a message about Christ, revealing Christ. There's nothing new here, so to speak, that that what is made plain in the gospel of Jesus Christ was was already being proclaimed by the prophets of old. It's just clearer and fuller. And, And it's hard to leave that stuff out once you see that it's there. It makes, for example, the, the Old Testament come alive in a way that, that it doesn't for many Christians because many Christians do omit the history of redemption from their understanding of the gospel. And as a result, they don't really understand what the purpose of the Old Testament is. We've heard it recently, even prominent Pastors questioning the utility of the Old Testament, you know, any, any good that it serves, which is an astonishing, astonishing position to take if you've read the epistle to the Romans and seen how much Old Testament air it breathes. For Paul, 
this redemptive history is a root. And it's better to have two roots than one. You've got the root of the proclaimed gospel, but you also have the the root of this idea of God's faithfulness over generations so that you are firmly rooted and established and strong in the faith because you can look back on a history of God's faithfulness to his people and you can trust in that as your history as well. And as a result, be deeply rooted. For the Apostle Paul, the gospel comes with a history. Right? We saw this in Romans 4 and 5 when, when he digs into that history. And he starts talking about the justification of Abraham, the law of Moses. He starts talking about the, the comparison between Jesus and Adam. He's getting into the history of redemption and showing us that without that history, you cannot understand the fullness of of the gospel. You need that rootedness. That history is an anchor, an anchor in your faith. So you need the proclaimed gospel. You need that redemptive history. But then there's a third thing he alludes to, which is the divine decree of election. The divine decree of election will keep you strongly rooted. Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings have been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. If you remember Romans 8 and 9, at the end of Romans 8, we discovered what uh, theologians refer to as the golden chain, a sort of uh, tie that connects You as a believer, on the one hand, all the way back before creation to the eternal decrees of the Father before the foundation of the world. And on the other hand, into the future, to the future glorification that comes when Christ returns. That's in Romans 8, 29 through 30. Paul says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So from foreknowledge to glorification, this this chain, an unbreakable commitment exists. And that chain here becomes a root a root that keeps us strong and established in the faith. I mean, this is where the mysteries of election are probed. If you remember when we went through Romans 8 and Romans 9, we talked about a lot of deep things and we brought up a lot of questions and only answered some of them because some of them God has not answered for us. Now, if it's true that that many Christians drop the redemptive history part from the gospel, it's definitely the case that most drop the decree of election from the gospel proclamation. That most just don't want to talk about that because they think it paints God in a bad light or it's going to freak people out. So we shouldn't talk about that. But as we saw when we talked about it, the reason that Paul talks about this election is not to freak us out. It is to give us strong confidence. 
that God intends to finish the work that he has begun. There's a purpose in revealing this root, and that is to give us strength, that we can trust in the command of the eternal God. And that, too, keeps us rooted and strong in the faith. If you think about these roots, which Paul touches on, if you think about the proclamation of the gospel, if you think about the glorious history of its revelation over time, and if you think about the mystery of that anchor before the foundation of the world in God's loving us, in God's choosing us, then there is a a cumulative effect that all these blessings have. As we reflect on these things, we find that we are truly rooted The doxology that Paul sings in praise of God notes these blessings to us, kind of piles them on, one behind the other. The gospel proclamation behind it, the history that made it possible, behind it, the love of God that puts all of this work into action. And the point of all this is that God uses this knowledge to build steadfastness. Like God has revealed the gospel and proclaimed it. Right? God has revealed the history of the gospel and he's revealed the fact of his, his choosing in order to establish us. This is knowledge that is given to us not for the sake of knowledge, but for the sake of faithfulness, for the sake of assurance, for the sake of comfort and belief. So whether we're talking about that kerygma, the, the, the moment of, of choice when, when we chose to put our faith in Christ. Or if you're talking about the long history of God's work in us and in history in order to bring that moment about, or you're talking about the, the ultimate mystery of chosenness that we see before the foundation of the world, all of these things are God Revealing knowledge in order to build faithfulness, in order to give us strong roots so that we can be like a tree planted by a river of water that brings forth fruit in its season, that we might thrive, that we might be comforted, and that we might not be easily blown back and forth by the winds. If you think about what it is Paul's trying to say here, he's doing that very Pauline thing where he's making a really simple statement and he's putting a lot of complicated stuff in the middle, which can, can be a little bit, it can hide the big picture if, if you let it. So if you look at our text again and, and just take out everything that we've been talking about, you could say what Paul's trying to, to, to convey is this, Like, now to him, dot, 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 and then down to 27, to the only wise God. Now to him, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. That's what he's really doing here. That's the statement he's making. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. And everything that he's touched on in the meantime is is blessings that God has bestowed upon us Yes, so that we might be deeply rooted, but more importantly than that, so that God might be glorified. He has given us these things so that we might glorify him 
To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. These three roots that we've looked at are a pretty good summary of the the major emphases of the book of Romans. So that if you, in your mind, were looking for some passage that could kind of be your window back into everything that we've studied, this doxology would be good. But it's a lot more than that. You might think of these words of Paul's as kind of like the the snow-capped peak on the mountain of the book of Romans. You couldn't say what he's saying here unless you had built up to it in the 16 chapters that have gone before. He's touching lightly on doctrines he has developed at great depth already so that in this final moment, through all of this knowledge, we would have a glimpse of glory, that we would have an ecstatic moment of praise. You see that all of the learning that went into this went into it so that we would be equipped for this moment of doxology. We've climbed and we've climbed and we've climbed so that we might reach this peak and the breathtaking statement. Glory to God. All glory to God. The only wise God. May he have glory forevermore through Christ. Amen. If you were trying to take this doxology and maybe spell it out, maybe make these connections more explicit. You might rewrite it this way. What Paul's saying is something like this. May the work of Christ, which strongly roots us through the preached gospel, through the progressively revealed history of divine covenant faithfulness, and through the divine decree before the foundation of the earth, glorify God. Or, may the work of Christ glorify God. Because the purpose of the work of Christ above all else, is the glory of God. The preached gospel saves, as we saw in Romans 10, and you find behind it this whole history of a progressively revealed plan of salvation, as we got a glimpse of in Romans 4 and 5. And behind that even, there's this irreversible love of God, this electing love that we explored in Romans 8 and 9. But the purpose of all of that work is actually greater than we realize. Now, if I say to you that the purpose of all Christ's work is more than just your personal salvation, that's probably not going to come as a shock to you because we talk about that a lot. It's not just about me. It's not just about my salvation. It's about like everybody's salvation, right? It's about, about human salvation. We're making it bigger. But the work of Christ is not ultimately about human salvation. Thinking, oh, that's right, that's right, because it's not just about humanity, it's about all creation. It's about cosmic redemption. The purpose of the work of Christ is more than cosmic redemption. It's more than personal salvation. It's more than corporate salvation. It's more than cosmic salvation. The purpose of the work of Christ is the glory of God, to glorify God. The purpose is God glorification through the means of salvation, through the means of the work of Christ, through the means of the blessings that we have been given. 
And that is why when you don't know where to focus, when you don't know what the right emphasis is, when you're not sure where to strike a balance in in your own life or in the, the life of the church, should we be more concerned about those who haven't heard? Should we be more concerned about those who are in need? Should we be more focused on prayer? Should we be more on guard against people who are, are spreading false ideas and undermining our unity? Where should we look? Where should we focus? The answer is always the same the glory of God. Because that's what the focus of the Son, Jesus Christ, was. The glory of God. And that's the purpose behind everything that Paul has said to us in the epistle to the Romans. And it is the purpose in this doxology. To God alone be the glory. I realize when you hear that, it may sound like it did to my friend, like just a pat answer. Like just something you say when you can't actually give a specific answer. It's only because we underestimate the value, the importance, the scope, the majesty of the glory of God. Because we've lost sight of what that means. As great as personal salvation is, as great as as corporate salvation is, as great as the redemption of the cosmos is, and all of them are great, the glory of God is greater and encompasses all those things. And those things, which would be of seemingly infinite value if they were the focus, become merely the means to achieving this great and incomprehensible to us project of the glorification of God, which we were created to reflect and to participate in. God is glorified through the blessings he pours out on us. Let's give all the glory to God. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.